so quickly, what I want to do is go to Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to start out in verse 33. God, I pray that you would help us today. Lord, I pray that you would help us with everything, Lord, that you would give us everything we need, God, and, and provide for us the entire way. God, that everything would be a beautiful, fragrant offering to you, God, and that you would see this worship service as pleasing, um, Lord, in your sight, in your ears, God, to your heart. God, lead us and help us today as we worship. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, y'all, let's get into worship with the word. Matthew 21, starting in verse 33, let's go. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those servants? And they said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Hmm. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Amen. What a wonderful word. What a wonderful selection. As you know, we are going verse by verse through Matthew. It's been a few years now for us, and we are in chapter 21, just about to finish chapter 21, as a matter of fact. Um, we've already gone through this chapter, and in this chapter we see as uh, Jesus brings to the attention of the people there, the, namely the chief priests and elders, the ones, the Jewish religious elite, you'll hear me refer to them uh, in that way, but he... he but he, does, he, he tells them and um, he, he brings them and calls them to account because of their treatment of John the Baptist and also because they are leading people astray. He calls them hypocrites in several places in the New Testament, namely here in Matthew, as we've studied before. But I want to say that this parable is a stark reminder that the world wants what belongs to God. I, I don't know that that's a mystery to anybody here. The world wants what belongs to God. The world wants it. Everything God has, his eternal power, his nature, his divine attributes, they want it. They want power and prestige. They want the land and they want everything that comes along with it. The world wants what God has. One of the remarkable things about the world is that the world is ridiculous. The world is reckless. Because of the recklessness of the world, they will act on passions and desires and thoughts and emotions. They will be driven by their feelings and they will forget about the facts every time they can. 
They will alter what the truth is by telling you a story that pulls on your heartstrings rather than informing your mind and hearts about the truth. The world wants to play on your emotions and they want you to forego the facts in lieu of your emotions. They want your emotions to take place of your brain, your mind. They want you to be led by your feelings rather than being led by the, cro the proper information. And they will count on people's inability to process truth as well as people can react to what they feel because this is where we find ourselves. It's easier to re react to what we feel than it is to process information. It's easier to react to what we feel emotionally than it is to dig deep and find the truth about a situation, than it is to research. Namely here, we're talking about, in the church, about things with God. And the reason, um, or not only that, but people tend to react much stronger. They react much stronger and with much more passion because of what they feel rather than what the truth is. The truth for the human race is that we can react to our own feelings quicker than we can process new information. And even when we process information, we process it to a great deal based on how we feel about it. So then we're going back to our feelings once again. Our outlook on the world is greatly influenced by how we feel about it. How do I feel about it? Not what's true. How do I feel? How do you feel about it? We need to make a conscious effort to allow the truth to inform our feelings and not to allow our feelings to inform us about the truth. We cannot allow our feelings to inform our minds without truth as the foundation of those feelings. We can only have truth as the foundation of our emotions and our feelings if we have Christ as our foundation. We need the truth underneath us undergirding us, holding us up. We need that as the slab, that foundation that we stand on. We need Christ. The depravity of man will tell man that it's okay to take something that doesn't belong to man. Do you know this to be true? Are there thieves in the world, church? Are there thieves in the world? I recently had my iPad stolen out of my car, so I know there are thieves in the world. Man will stake a claim on what isn't theirs because they will rationalize in their own minds a reason why it should belong to them even when it doesn't. And if it doesn't belong to them, then they'll just take it. And once there, they, they'll change it, alter it so that it suits their thinking, so that they feel good about it, and they make it their very own. Things that other people own will never be good enough for you. You will always go in and try to change them if you can. People do this with homes, cars, clothing, offices, workspaces, everything, and yes, even the church. Once one believes they have ownership over something, they will change it. Undeniably, they will try and change it. Doctrine, the truth of the church, it has been altered over and over and over again in the minds of certain denominations. But let me tell you something, here in this church, we don't change what the Word of God says. We don't use it to suit our own desires. We take it and allow it to inform us about what our desires should be. We, act to the, we react to the truth of God with the wisdom in our hearts that God brings us through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the truth in our hearts because we believe in Jesus. 
This is what the Jews and the Pharisees did with the religion of God. They went in. They didn't feel like it was right the way that it was, so they changed it. They took possession of it. They changed it. They altered it to suit their own thinking, their own desires. They hijacked it. They tried to change and rebuild something that God created to suit themselves and for their own glory here on earth. But as we know, church, we are not here for our own glory. We are here for the glory of another. Whose glory are we here for, church? That's right, God, Jesus, that's right. His glory, his glory alone, he alone is worthy. And this is one of the reasons for the beautiful words in the Lord, of the Lord when he says this in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Listen to this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they might be praised by others. Let me listen to this next verse. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites for they love to stand and pray in synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Again, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. The reason this is so important to us is it shows us the reward system and what side we need to be on. Shows us the reward system and which side we need to be on. Truly, I tell you, they have already received their reward. Jesus says that twice in this passage we just read. There is a reward from God in heaven given to those who love God and who do everything for his glory because of the goodness of God and the grace of God to reward those who love him. And he gives salvation by grace through faith to those who believe. But there is another reward that he says here. Truly, I tell you, they have already received their reward. So if the Pharisees will not be rewarded in heaven, then what's the reward that they receive? What does that really even mean? That reward has its origins in the earth, in man. And those rewards don't go any farther than the earth. They're given from the people of the earth for things done for the sole purpose of being seen a certain way by the people. Those rewards are just earthly rewards. They've received the reward. In other words, they ain't getting nothing after this. Everything they enjoy, they're going to have to enjoy it while they're here because there isn't anything for them to enjoy after they go from here. They've received their reward. Now, the Pharisees were doing things not for the glory of God with their reward in heaven, but they were doing things for their own glory. And this is what we see over and over and over again. This is why... They, uh, the Lord Jesus calls them hypocrites because they're constantly calling people to account for their sin while being sinful themselves. Jesus says they are hypocrites. They are saying one thing, preaching one thing, asking people to do one thing, but then they themselves are doing quite the opposite, hypocritical. You see, they couldn't wait for the reward from God after living a godly life in praise of him. They needed the reward now, so they sought it from the people, and they hijacked the religion of God. They wanted to be seen a certain way. They wanted to be 
wanted to be held to high esteem and lifted up in the minds and hearts of the people that they presided over. This was the Pharisees. They knew how God had historically reacted to those people who had turned from God, those people who had hijacked his religion, those who took his name in vain, who used it to suit their own desires, but they wanted the praise of man so much more than they cared about what the possible repercussions of their actions might be. For this reason, Jesus called them hypocrites. And he called us away from that way of life. He calls them hypocrites because he's letting us know, hey, listen, what they're doing, you don't want to do that. The way that they're living, that's not the way to live. Calling attention to yourself, that's not the way to do it. Sounding an alarm, a trumpet before you every time you give to somebody, yeah, you know, uh, So-and-so asked for some help, so, you know, uh, I just had to help him out. Just me, I did it. You know, uh, I had to help him out a little bit. You know, I had a little something stashed away. I'm going to have to, you know, put back into that because, you know, I got to take care of me too. But I helped him out, you know. This is the hypocritical way. Sounding a trumpet before you every time you help somebody out, don't do it. The Bible says here, we should not even let our left hand know what our right hand is doing or our right left know what our left is doing. In other words, how do we do that? How? Don't sound an alarm. Give by the grace and glory of God. For the glory of God alone. They called people, the Pharisees did. Jesus called them hypocrites because they called the people to works. They called people to the temple, to sacrifices, so that the people could be right with God, but the Jewish leaders themselves were not right with God. How do we know that? Because Jesus calls them hypocrites and calls us away from that life. That's not the life you need to live. They said one thing, they did another. So Jesus said, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And this is a very scary set of words here, isn't it? Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward. You shouldn't want the world's reward, church. Please do not seek the reward of the world. Please do not seek the glory of man. Please do not seek the riches of man. Please do not seek the world. Do not seek after man. Seek after God. He alone is worthy of your attention. You shouldn't want the world's reward. The world will rescind your rewards as soon as they give them. The world is not trustworthy to give to you and never take away. They'll take it back. You will be a hero one day and a villain the next. You cannot trust the world to deal justly and fairly with you, church. The world has its own set of values that don't line up with God's. The world's value system changes moment by moment, day by day. They change. One thing is good one moment, and the next it's terrible. The world doesn't have a hard and fast rule on what is right and what is wrong. If you'll notice, the world changes along with the culture. And if you can get a lot of people up with you to start up a thing and be against something, well, the world will be against it too. No matter how right or how wrong it is, It's not morality that the world looks to. It's the crowd. Listen to what the Pharisees said. They they didn't want to do anything. Why not at the end? Because the crowd held that he was a prophet, so they didn't want to start nothing. 
Historically, it's been okay to demean and devalue human life so long as that life doesn't look like you in the world. This is an example of the world's injustice. It's been okay to demean and devalue human life so long as that life doesn't look like you just because of the way someone looks. It's historically been okay to treat people poorly and even enslave and torture those who simply look different. And now people in some countries have a problem with that. Namely here in this country now, a certain set of people, so that now there's an uproar, but the world still has a huge problem and tortures and enslaves those who believe differently than they do. And now more than ever, it's not just persecuting those who believe differently, but thinking differently here in America has its consequences too, doesn't it? People will write you off because of what you believe or where you fall politically. People will write you off The world is not your friend, church. So don't befriend the world. It will never be the type of friend you need. The world will never treat you well. It will never look out for your best interest. It will never have a place for you in glory after you leave this world. It will never provide perfectly for you. It will not go ahead of you and prepare a place for you the way that Jesus does. It does not have hope and security and a future promised for you. The world does not have that. And the Pharisees should know this, but they've chosen to forego the facts and instead listen to their own feelings on how they are regarded by the people. They should know what the world, that the world is unkind, but they've been blinded by all of the glory and all of the adulation and all of the honor that they receive from the people because of their authority and the position that they hold. They're in love with the patent on the back. They're in love with the glory. They're in love with the applause. They're in love with the way that people look at them and see them as religious. They've been blinded by their own pride and desire. But more than this, what we need to recognize is that we don't need the world to be fair. We don't need the world to be just. We need to know that it will never be those things. We don't need justice, church. We don't need fairness. What do we need, church? We need Jesus. That means that we need grace. We don't need justice. We don't need fairness. We need grace. We don't need justice and fairness. We need love. We don't need justice and fairness. We need forgiveness. That's what we need. Grace. This is what Jesus offers to us, what God offers us that the Pharisees knew nothing about. They didn't know about grace. And what a sad state of affairs for the people who are in charge of God's religion and the people of God through the ages, that they know nothing of grace. What a sad state of affairs. I'm so happy you know about grace, church, because then that means you're graceful toward me. And I need your grace. And I'm so happy you know about grace, church, because then you're graceful toward one another. And you need that grace. We all need it, church. All of us, every single one of us. God helping those who cannot possibly help themselves is grace. There's an old adage, God helps those who help themselves. That's wrong. It's not in the scripture. It's anti-biblical. It's anti-gospel. The truth is that God helps those who could not possibly help themselves. That's what grace is. Jesus had to die. If God helped those who helped themselves, then man, 
Shouldn't I just die for my own sin, pay for my own sin? Wouldn't my sacrifice be, you know, wouldn't I be justified by that? Absolutely not. The teaching of the scripture is that we need God's grace. God rewards people because God is so good. I want to say that again. God rewards people because God is so good. If you believe that you're rewarded because of your own goodness, you've become a Pharisee. You are rewarded because of the goodness of God and His goodness alone. That's what grace is. God rewarding and preparing a place for people who have rebelled against Him, sinned their entire lives. God rewarding us because of His great love, nothing else. And once we believe, we realize that grace deep within our souls. And communion with God happens once we believe. Communion, togetherness, unity. We are one We are one with God once we believe. His grace saves us once we believe. He set it up this way from the beginning. The world does not have this ability. That's not the way it's set up. That's not the way it's built. We would always need his help in understanding how to be in relationship with him. And the problem with the Pharisees is is they, they could not see past their own politics. Remember that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, I've said this before, They were two different political factions within the Jewish religious elite. They were constantly at odds with one another. They couldn't see past their pride. They could not see past their own earthly rewards. Our encouragement from God today is, among other things here in this text, our encouragement from God today is not to run to the world, but to run to God and to wait on God and his rewards. Can you wait on God, church? Isn't that one hard? Waiting on God, especially when you need help now. I want you to know and be able to see that God is helping you now. He is helping you now. God has laid a foundation, and he is building upon that foundation in your life. As you seek him, as you study about him, that foundation continues to be built. The walls are set up. Right? The studs are put in place. The walls are set up. He's building upon that foundation as you seek him and as you bring him glory in your life. But the foundation is his. Let's go to verse 33, Matthew 21. Here, another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower and leased it to tenants, and went into another country. Now, this is a reference to Isaiah chapter 5. Now, I'm not going to go there today, but I encourage you to go there in Isaiah 5 in your own reading. Um, The Lord literally says this to Isaiah. He literally says these things. He has those things. He put a fence around it, or the master of a house who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, okay? In that that, uh, prophecy in Isaiah 5, It is a judgment against Israel and Judah, okay? It is a judgment against them. As soon as the Pharisees heard these words, they should have automatically went, "Uh uh-oh, Isaiah 5, the judgment of God on Judah and Israel. What does this mean? They should have known that, but they didn't catch on to it right away. Look at the provision here in this text. I want to go to this real quick. Security, 
okay, put a fence around it. He planted a vineyard, put a fence around it. So he laid the foundation, he tilled it, planted the vineyard, and then he put a fence around it. Look at the provision here, security, protection from attack, from poachers. A fence was built. A fence was built to signify that this land was owned and it was valued highly. I care about what I have. I care about what's been given to me. I care about the opportunity that God has given me to own this land. I'm going to protect it. I care about it. A fence was built to signify that. And there was a wine press built in it so that the people could live and be provided for as they worked and tended the land. Now, when you're planting a vineyard to realize a crop, you're talking about five years, okay? So think about that. When we're talking about, oh, that they should have had fruit by then. Think about the provision of God to take care of those tenants or the provision of the master of the house in this parable to provide for those tenants for five years before they produce a crop. Where was their money coming from? Where was their sustenance coming from? How were they allowed to live? Where was the food that they had coming from? How about their shelter? Where was that coming from? It was coming from the master of the house. He had provided for them for five years. So knowing this in the back of their minds, they know how, much, how long it takes a vineyard once it's planted to realize a crop, to get a harvest. They know they know that. If they're all over, okay? There was a wine press built into it so that people could live and be provided for as they worked and tended the land. And there was a tower so that they could look, watchtower, see those coming into the land from far off to have a vantage point and prepare for anything coming down the road, right? We know that the watchtower is a significant thing. The watchman on the wall is a significant thing in the scripture, right? Watchtower is significant. And then the master of the house leased it, signifying that the land would temporarily be used by the tenants paying for it. Temporarily. They didn't own it. They were temporary tenants. But by leasing, the Lord's reminding us that he owns the vineyard. The tenants never own it. They just lease it. They have it temporarily, not forever, the master owns it. Let's go to Psalm chapter 50 and verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. Anybody know who that is? That's God, okay? Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. Who owns the world, church? God does. The vineyard, again, the master of the house, owns it. But then the tenants took, uh, they, they think that it should belong to them uh, because they think it shouldn't belong to him anymore. They think it should belong to them. They feel like it should belong to them. After all, aren't they the ones doing all the work, tilling the land, tending to the vineyard, harvesting the fruit? Aren't they the ones working the land? Shouldn't it belong to them? This is where the human heart wants to go, and this is how the human heart falls off the cliff and goes astray. When the human heart thinks that something belongs to them that never has. The human heart entrenched in sin wants to believe that nothing would ever get done if it weren't for them. 
You ever hurt somebody? I don't know how, what they do without me there at work. I do everything. Huh? And that's nobody here. I know. I don't know what they do without me. Right? The human heart wants to go there, wants to think that nothing would get done without them if it weren't for them. They forget that there wouldn't be any work to do nor a place to do it if it weren't for the master of the house. What if there was no land, no vineyard, no sustenance, no provision? How are you going to feel then? Nothing happens without ownership. And if it weren't for the mercy and the grace of the master of the house to allow them to live there, lease it to work from him for a time so that they could live off the land that he owns, they wouldn't have it. They wouldn't have it. In their ignorance and recklessness, they can't see it. So they try to take it by force. And we know from 1 Corinthians 13 that love is never forceful. It does not insist on its own way. Do you know that? Love is patient. Love is kind, right? We, we know those. Oh, yes, yes. It does not insist on its own way. It is never forceful or rude, right? So we know that this is the wrong way to do things. And they kill all the people that he sends to them, all the servants that he sends to collect the fruit that they should have produced, they should have harvested it. And this is an illustration of what they did to the prophets. This is a judgment against Judah, against Israel. In this case, a judgment against the Jewish leaders and their brand of religion, their, the, they, the stamp they had put on it. And this is an illustration, killing the servants that he sent with the message, calling them to account, asking them, where is the fruit? Where is the harvest? And they kill those. It's an illustration of what they've done to the prophets. He calls them to, the, to account about their treatment of the prophet John the Baptist in the passage before this. And they didn't believe John, but they never believed the prophets. They didn't believe them. Why not? Because the prophets had the very word of God. They had the strong word of God. The word of God that called them to account, that asked them, hey, listen, so you say you believe in God. I recognize that. I, I see that you are going and offering sacrifices. We see that the Lord says it. Uh, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. He's telling them, listen, you're continuing to do all those observances, but your heart is far from me. I'm not saying you're not giving burnt offerings, that you're not offering sacrifices. What I'm saying is you're depending on that to allow you to continue to sin and live in the way of the world rather than in the way of God. Don't do things just because you can ask forgiveness for them. You know the whole, oh, I'm, I'm gonna, I'll ask forgiveness before I ask permission. I'm not going to ask for permission. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. Don't live like that. That is not the way of the Christian. Always, always go in the way that you should go, knowing the authority structure that's been set up before God or by God. So we know that this is the wrong way to do things. One example of this, that they did not believe the prophets, is Luke 11, 47 and 48. I want to read for you. There are others, other examples, but we're just going to do this for brevity. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. This is Jesus' words, by the way, church. These could be in red, all right? So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you build their tombs. And he goes on to tell them again, 
But woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets for whom your fathers killed, so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. What deeds did they consent to? The killing of the prophets. For they killed them and you build their tombs. They had turned their faces from the prophets, the people of Israel did, because the prophets often told, often told them what God wanted them to be told, and that message was a hard message to hear. Who likes hearing that they're doing things wrong? Anybody in here, you like hearing it? You, you, you revel in it? You glory in it? I, I want to know when I'm, no, I don't, I don't like it. I personally do not like being told that I'm doing something wrong. Do I need it? Oh, yes, I do. Because I do wrong things all the time, and if nobody's there to tell me, then how am I going to correct it? It's like with my son. I, 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 I tell my son's things. I, you're doing this wrong, and I tell them what they're doing wrong and why it's wrong so that they have a chance to correct it. They turn their faces from God. So finally, the master, in verse 37, finally he sent his son to them. Matthew 21, back to Matthew 21, 37. Finally he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. So remember, he sends out the first group of servants. They kill him, or they, they stone him, right? They beat him up. They send the second round, they kill him. They will respect my son, in 37, verse 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come let us kill him and have his, his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Anyone have a guess as to whom Jesus is referring when he speaks of the son killed by the tenant farmers? Zena? Himself, himself, the son, the son, himself, absolutely. Jesus, he's speaking of himself and the current treatment that he's received. He's also alluding to what will take place ultimately on the cross when he gives his life. They want what's his, but they will never have it. Verse 40, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes... What will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death. Okay, this is the Pharisees saying this, okay? They're like, oh, he's going to put those wretches to a miserable death, and he's going to... That's what he's going to do. That's what he should do. That's what we do. He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And Jesus says to them, have you never read the scriptures? Oh, ho, ho, ho. Woo. Mm. who's he saying this to, y'all? Who's, who's he saying that to? The Pharisees, right? They, he's saying to them, have you, haven't you? Man, if I said something and somebody said to me, haven't you ever read the Bible? I'd be like, say what now? You know I read the Bible, Right? Get a little attitude, maybe. That's, that's the Jewish religious elite. These are the leaders of the synagogue. These are the ones who are teaching. These are the ones who decide what the doctrine of God means. They interpret it for the people. And he's telling them, haven't you ever read this Bible? You ain't never read the scriptures? Ooh. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone, which stone? The cornerstone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, what's the it? The cornerstone. When the cornerstone falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the, pro- and the Pharisees heard this, his parables, they perceived, uh-oh, here it comes. They finally figure it out. Wait a second. Y'all, he's talking about us. This guy. He's talking about us. Y'all hear this? Do I read the scripture? When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. Ding! The light comes on, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now, it's interesting to point out as well that the parables, Jesus meant for the parables to hide truth, to hide meaning. For the Pharisees, for those who didn't believe, they would hide meaning. In other words, they were letting the Pharisees know. He was letting the Pharisees know, listen, you don't understand what God is telling you. That is a judgment against you. But there are some who do understand. They will understand what God is telling them, and that is the people of God. Those are the people of God. For us, it illuminates the meaning It's an illustration that lies, that goes right alongside a truth, a parable, so that we would understand what the meaning of God is and understand it in a a, a way that would paint a picture for our minds so that we would understand it more deeply. But for those who don't believe, it hides the truth. It hides meaning. But this parable, this is the one parable that the Jewish leaders understood. Why? How did they understand this one if they didn't understand any of them? Forty parables... How come they didn't understand any of those, but they understood this one? Because God wanted them to understand this one. Why did he want them to understand this one, church? Because it was a judgment against them. He wanted them to know where they stood with God. Church, I submit to you today that God wants you to know where you stand with him. Always, he wants you to know And for those who believe in him, God wants you to know that you belong to him. And nobody can take you from him. What the Lord has promised and sealed, nobody can take away and unseal. What the Lord has made straight, no man can bend. Our God is a great God who lives eternally and is blessed forever who ushers in a kingdom of grace so that we would know that we could not do it, but he can, so we believe in him because he can and because he did do it. He does everything that needs to be done. He fulfills it all. And as we know, they say because they held him to be a prophet, they feared the crowds, they were seeking to arrest him, but eh, they didn't because they were afraid because the crowds held him to be a prophet. And as we know, Jesus is much more than a prophet, don't we? He is much more than a prophet, People still try to make that claim today, church. Well, Jesus, yeah, he was a good teacher. Good teachers do not claim to be God if they are not God and they, or, or they don't remain good teachers if they claim to be God and are not. He was one with God, he is one with God, claimed to be God, claimed to have the power to forgive sin. That's God. God alone can do that. Jesus is true. He's right when he says that he is God. 
He's more than just a good teacher. He is Lord and God. He is the cornerstone rejected by the world and at that time specifically rejected by the Jewish leaders. He is the stone that they would stumble over. He is the stone that will cause the world to stumble, to stammer, to stutter when they have to give account to him in glory. They will have no sufficient answer for God on the day of judgment. They will stumble. They will stammer. They will be crushed under the weight of the stone of glory. They will be crushed under the weight because of the weight of their own sin. Broken to pieces and crushed by the stone, they will be lost and destroyed forever. And this is what God is calling you out of so that you would be with him forever and be loved on forever. So what did they want from him because of this? The Pharisees, what did they want from him, the Jewish elders? They wanted to arrest him. They wanted his life. They were living out the very thing that they had just described, that he had just described to them. Think about that. Think about the beginning of the parable. The master sends the servants over there to collect the fruit. Nope, stone him, beat him, all that. So what did they want from him? The Pharisees, after hearing this parable, they wanted to arrest him. They wanted his life. They were living out the very thing that he had just described to them. They had killed the prophets, and they would kill the son. This is what we're looking at. This is where we're at in the life of Christ. They were trying to take the vineyard by force, to become masters of the house and make it their very own. They needed it to look just the way they wanted it to look. They couldn't have it look any different. They needed to make sure that they cornered the market on religion in the world. They needed to make sure that people still looked to them for the answers and not to someone else. They needed to make sure that their doctrine and their teaching was held high and lifted up, not the teaching of someone else that called their teaching into question. They needed to make sure that their observances and everything that they had added to the law was held in high esteem, that it was carried out by the people so that they could exercise their control over the people. They didn't want a covenant of grace between God and man. Why not? Because then they would lose their control. And they wouldn't hold the power that they felt they had. They were condemned by their own actions. And their foolish hearts had been led astray. Think about what they said. What did they say should happen? What did they say should happen? Verse 40, when the, therefore the owners of the vineyard, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said, this is their own words, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to the other servants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. They had just condemned themselves because they were living this out in real time. They ultimately believed in themselves as they were led by their own feelings, regardless of what the truth was, standing right in front of them, the truth. Think about Jesus, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me, Jesus says. They were led by their feelings 
they were led by their insides. Regardless of the truth standing right before their eyes. Jesus will use your own life to teach you a lesson, church. And we see it plainly here in this passage. He uses the lives of the Pharisees and the Jewish elders to teach them a lesson. And I want you to learn from him today, church. And this is our lesson. Don't be led by the world. Don't seek refuge in the world. Don't be led by your feelings, nor seek refuge in them. Don't expect the world to be your friend and don't try and befriend it because it will deceive you into thinking that it loves you. It's not just the world isn't. It's not just. It's not fair. It will always insist on its own way. It will always forcibly try to take things. It will always be rude. It will always turn on you when you need it the most. So my plea to you today and your main lesson is place your trust and your faith in Jesus Christ alone. In Him alone. He has a grace available to you that loves and saves and keeps all of those who believe in Him forever. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for loving us so deeply, Lord, for giving us everything we need, Lord, every step of the way that you do this. Lord, we love you and we thank you for calling us to a better way, to a new way, Lord, the way of eternal life, the most excellent way, Lord, the way of love. We thank you. God, please continue to help us every step of the way. Please continue to help us as we desire to understand your word. God, help us with everything that we need, and we thank you for that help, God. In Jesus' name, amen.